Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome back Joni Spiso, President of UCLA Health and CEO of the UCLA Hospital System. This time around, we'll pick up where we left off, but then pivot to discuss a number of macroeconomic issues facing our industry. Jonice, thanks so much for coming back. Hi, Tom. Thank you for having me. You've spent time in two markets that I would characterize as kind of historically managed care markets. I think of Group Health of Puget Sound, which I think was founded back in the 1940s in Seattle, uh, being one of the first generation HMOs. And then we have Southern California having embraced primary care capitation as far back as the 1980s. Why do you think those old managed care concepts failed to create a long-term solution to runaway healthcare spending? Well, thank you, Tom. And, you know, as I reflect on that, and it seems so long ago, right, when all of that was originally being pushed forward, I think there were some early issues that really impacted the success. And the first I would say was the the whole program design and the, the thought that we would have this gatekeeper model in primary care at the same time when we were educating the public so much on what care is available, what the best care is, all the new treatments and technologies that were evolving. I think there was a lot of patient resistance at the time of really being contained and not able to seek out their own opinions on things. Additionally, I think that the model really failed to incentivize the behavior around value-based care that was needed. So I'm talking about, you know, in the 90s and things, right? It was all about how do we control costs, really looking at it in more of a one-dimensional way rather than looking at the value and outcome. And Tom, I think of the work that you did, you know, in Vizient and prior to that through UHC of trying to bring some understanding into what is viewed sometimes as high-cost care in academic health systems, but showing that relationship to value over time, right? And I think that that is the work that was really not well understood, not only by patient community, but by the payer community. So I think it was really, I would trace it back to really the whole design. I completely agree with you. I started my career out in, in managed care, and uh, came to realize decades ago that people will vote with their feet. And the reason that we only got to the HMO enrollment that we did is that the people that wanted to be in HMOs were, and the rest of the folks really didn't like that model. That's a good segue into our latest research study that's ongoing right now, and that I'll be sharing with you early next year. And it takes a new look at the old question, is healthcare a right or a privilege? And I would suggest that the answer to that is more than philosophic. If you think back, as you and I were just talking about this, 40 years of the market's failure to produce affordable, rational pricing, it's possible that that's not a failure by the market, but instead, perhaps it's a failure by us in expecting the market to do something that it can't do. The term, what the market will bear, 
is something that I find a little bit uncomfortable in healthcare. If you look to the market to establish the price of a good or a service, you will get the price that is literally as high as the market will bear. And I have to confess a bias, Jonies. I don't think healthcare prices should be as high as they can be. I think they should be as low as they can be while still allowing efficient providers to operate uh, underneath those prices. And I don't think that's ever going to be what the market delivers. So here's the question. Would you tell me that I'm crazy if I suggested that we need rational limits on healthcare prices rather than allowing them to rise to be as high as the market will bear? So, okay, that is a loaded question. First of all, I'm going to step back and I'm going to say, you know, I've learned so much from you over the years on how you have such an incredible way of really bringing the business intelligence to our business in healthcare and really looking at this from both a, a macroeconomic and microeconomic perspective and putting things together in, you know, what you've published over the years and all of the, the great now research intelligence efforts that you're leading through Vizient in putting together these proposals and statements that really allow us to think differently about our work and making it understandable, not only to us in healthcare, but also documents and guidance we can use um, in our local markets with our governmental relations teams and with our payer market. So first of all, I can't thank you enough for that work that's been done. And I'm really thrilled about this new work that you're leading. Now, I would say I agree completely with you that we have to have rational limits on prices. I won't go as far as saying we have to have rate regulation that is necessarily uniform and consistent at each different point of care. And the reason I say that is because right now, the way that we're reimbursed and the way that we have to invest in capital really relies on us having rate structures that allow us to be sustainable. And so I think there's a lot of nuances in how those come forward, but I do like the rational approach that you're taking to this. And I am looking forward to seeing your latest research uh, project. And I've been following it along, but on what your conclusions will be on that. And then the other thing that I'll say, Tom, that I've always valued about what you've put forward in the work through Vizient is as you put these things forward, you're constantly monitoring it. And when you see things changing, you're the first one to come back and say, I thought it was this, but it's actually going to be this, right? And I think that piece as well is so helpful to us in guiding that. And as you know, um, you know, pre-COVID, usually every year, I like to have you come on site as we're doing our strategic plan and really talk with us about what you're seeing, not only to the healthcare leadership team, but also our clinical chairs, because you have a way, I think, of seeing kind of the future and where it's going particularly from a market standpoint, even before we see that. And while sometimes everyone doesn't like what you're saying, right, because it may not be where we want it to be, I think it's something that we've learned we have to listen to. So I'm really looking forward to what you have to advise us on, particularly this most challenging concept. 
Well, you're very kind to say that. I have to jump in and clarify one point to put you at ease um, because I think you and I are in far greater agreement than you might worry. When I talk about these rational limits on prices, I absolutely don't mean one size fits all. Everybody in the market gets the same price for fill in the blank service. What I'm talking about is really more all of the payers would pay UCLA the same amount as each other. They wouldn't pay UCLA the same amount as they would pay a small community hospital because their cost structure is quite different. Um, so there would be differences within the market, but it wouldn't be uh, whatever someone could negotiate. It would have some rational basis to it. But the government and the private sector in my goofy world the government would pay more, the private sector would probably pay a little less, but they'd pay the same so that you could be payer agnostic. You could stop worrying about whether a patient came from Brentwood or whether they came from a part of the, the LA market that is right now underserved. And I'm not talking about kind of one size fits all pricing at all. It's just the Wild West seems to be not working too well. Yes. And I couldn't agree more with that. And then, you know, as a result of how that works, then we have complicated structures that are really just cost shifting, right? Yep. So I couldn't agree more with that. And again, how we're closer to cost-based reimbursement, you know, as a baseline, I think would really save a lot in the long run of all of the complicating uh, algorithms that we go through to really uh, stay financially viable. Let's take another step forward on that topic, and I want to circle back to something that I remember you mentioning in our first session. You were talking about your concerns and, and all of our concerns about health disparities. These two topics are related insofar as a market, by its nature, will not solve disparities. They create them because, by their nature, the folks with means to pay bid up the prices of scarce resources higher than folks without means can afford to pay. And so if, if we're worried as a country about health disparities, in my mind, that's another argument against having the market be the tool for establishing prices. So Tom, what's the question? My question for you, Jonice, is if we had some sort of rate regulation that made providers payer agnostic, where you didn't have to worry about who was paying the bill, might we see more investments in areas of the Los Angeles geography that are now something that you might refer to as a medical desert? Yes, Tom. I mean, I think that definitely would improve and it would allow us also to provide a lot of essential services that the resources continue to dwindle. And the area that I would say in particularly is mental health. We are one of the few providers of inpatient mental health and our inpatient psychiatric facility is overflowing on a daily basis with patients boarding. But because so many other places have closed, right, there aren't options. One of the things we're doing, we just purchased a, a hospital that was closing and we're going to be making about a $400 million investment there to turn that into a behavioral health and mental health center of excellence. So it'll be another full UCLA campus and we'll be able to add about 125 inpatient psychiatric beds. That's really important to do at a time when we're seeing just really rising levels of 
uh, behavioral health crisis in our community and particularly in moving now to a much younger population of adolescents, right, with the levels of depression and anxiety. And there isn't much to incentivize people to jump into that market. And instead, what we see is people continuing to close services. So we're doing it as a major investment in our community and community engagement. But we need to have things to incentivize not only others to do it, but for us to keep expanding it. We know we lose money every year on every new bed we add in behavioral health, yet it is a top priority of our community and we're committed to that. But one institution or a few institutions in a city of 10 million people is really a challenge. And so I would like to see um, not only a payer agnostic, but also the the parity between mental health and medical health issues that is much needed, not only in our community, but in this country. You know, we're across the country from each other, or I would reach out and try and give you a high five. <laughs> mental health is a topic for me personally, given some family situations where I have unfortunately firsthand experience with how difficult it is to get help for folks who sometimes desperately need it. And I'm convinced that uh, so many of the medical needs of the population, particularly of the very sick population, are exacerbated by uh, mental health uh, complications that you can't solve the first without dealing with the second. So I'm thrilled to hear that you guys are doing that even before the macro health system provides an awful lot of financial incentive to do it. That is truly mission-driven on your part, and I would high-five you if I could get across the country fast enough to do it. Well, thank you. And I think, you know, it's the pandemic that's been there looming in front of our eyes in the crisis in mental health and behavioral health. And if we look at what we're doing to our youth, right, with what we've seen with the rising numbers of anxiety and depression, the effect and impact of social media on that. I mean, look at what we're doing to our young culture, right? And yet we're not making any provisions to invest in the the care and the, the treatment that they need for that. It's interesting, one of our psychiatrists was just doing a presentation for us and showed the increasing numbers of depression and anxiety in youth since the iPhone hit the market. Ooh. So isn't that interesting? And we're all sitting there watching this presentation and panicking and saying, well, what are we going to do about this, right? Because, you know, the influence and images of social media and the anxiety that that causes, you know, we're not looking at anything related to that. And I, I just think it's a crisis out there looming that we need a lot of resources and investment to do. Another thing that we're doing at UCLA, working with our entire campus, we have something that's called a Depression Grand Challenge. So we have apps now on the iPhone where people can really weigh in every day with those first initial symptoms of how they're feeling. Is it a good day? Are you using your, you know, calming and meditation activities? But it's just, it's something that I think the amount of people in need out there is far greater than what we have in resources to provide. Well, good for you for tackling it. And my compliments to the organization for having the foresight to move in that direction without the incentive to do it. It allows me to maybe 
wrap our our, uh, session up with a question that is directly related to that. What would you do differently? And let's move away from mental health since you already tackled it or you already addressed it. But what would you do differently, Jonice, if instead of being dependent on fee-for-service revenue, if I gave you several billion dollars, not capitation, not linked to specific human beings and forcing them to stay within a, a, you know, a health system. But I just said, here are billions of dollars. These are your resources to handle whatever comes your way. So this is your annual operating budget and you can use it however you want. What would you do differently? You know, I think with that type of money and the ability to make such a transformational impact, right, I think I would use a lot of that to really leverage some of the groundbreaking research and discoveries that are on path to come forward. We have so many in place here at UCLA that are really so close to having breakthroughs. I would use it to accelerate that because I do feel that we have to be able to make a dent there if we're ever going to get out of all of the issues that we have with access and capacity, right? We just can't keep spending money on the traditional bricks and mortar of doing everything the same. We have to have new ways, right, of of keeping people healthy that are very complex, but doing it in a setting that's outside the four walls of a hospital. So how do we really advance those hospital at home concepts? How do we really advance some of the innovation and design work we're doing that allow people to have more health maintenance that they're doing on their own without having to really see a healthcare professional for each of those. I really think we have to make an impact on that portion of the pipeline as well. And, you know, on the research side, when we think about we've had like 14 cancer drugs discovered at UCLA Health over the past decade. And I think about what it went into those and the great partnership with philanthropy that really helped bring those things forward into market at at speeds that we couldn't have done it with just traditional dollars. So I would like to see it help advance the discovery piece that it's going to allow us to really transform not only care, but also the health of our community. You know, it makes me think back to a couple of visits back um, when I was out to see you and we were talking in those days about something that we were calling a chronic disease medical home. Very similar to what you're describing conceptually. Is that kind of in the vein of what you would do if you had that latitude? It is. And, you know, even during the COVID-19 pandemic and the worst of the surges, we had a lot of very complex patients that needed to come in that were afraid to come in. So we had what we called an extensivist service um, on how we send our team members out to the community, out to the home to really help keep these complex patients safe. It's very resource intensive. We need to develop a lot better tools and technology to do that. But it really showed us that Thinking differently about that is a lot of the ways that we need to go. And I think that's where particularly investing in innovation around that area will serve us well in the future. I'd like to close with a question that that's a a little bit on the personal side, not embarrassingly so, but, uh, (laughs) you know, one of the reasons that, that I know you so well is that you, like me, have spent so much of your professional career 
flying places. I always appreciated the fact that you had farther to fly from Seattle or even Los Angeles than many of our other uh, colleagues and members when the meetings were on the eastern part of the United States. And that, that time away from family, it's not just when you're traveling. In medicine, an awful lot of time is spent uh, during off hours, thinking, meeting, planning. It seems like yesterday that I was asking you about your daughter's ballet classes. And I'm stunned to realize that she's now graduated from college and graduate school. How did your mutual enjoyment of, of dance bring you and your daughter closer together and your family uh, in a profession where these late evenings and long trips uh, place such a demand on our time? Well, Tom, thank you. And I know you can appreciate this as well, having daughters. But for me, um, and someone who grew up uh, dancing and taking ballet as well, um, first of all, I, I was thrilled when my daughter had a natural desire to do that. And what I found is it brought us together to have that family time, particularly on weekends when I could take her to class before she could drive. So I really enjoyed having time in the car as I was taking her to ballet to have those great conversations um, and hear about how she was progressing and anything that was really important to her. And then going to see her in the performances and then watching performances together. So even now that she's out of college and grad school, she's definitely a fan of ballet and the performing arts. And it's something that we find relaxing to do as family time together. And I will say as well, I've always found in healthcare, the therapeutic arts, it's something we have a big program here at UCLA where we have people playing music. We have people dancing, particularly in our um, Mattel Children's Hospital, to really bring in that diversion therapy that adds a sense of, I feel, well-being and the beautiful artistry that helps people relax. It's, it's a way to really have that mindfulness with the visual arts that I think is, is just something that's a nice place to step away from what we see many days in the hospital. We see a lot of pain. We see a lot of suffering. We see a lot of triumphs and tragedies. Um, and it is a way to, I think, reflect and brings, for me, a lot of tremendous relaxation and enjoyment. Well, it's been a long, long time that I've been following not just your family situation, but your career. I've spent time with you in Seattle and in Los Angeles. I'm grateful for having such a wonderful friendship for so many years. And, you know, you embody what I think is really special about the academic uh, portion of what we do. It's that intellectual curiosity that not just um, tolerates, but invites questions about old orthodoxies or allows us to ask sometimes uncomfortable questions. You're an inspiration for colleagues around the country, and we can't thank you enough for being with us on the podcast. Well, thank you, Tom. And again, I really want to thank you and your leadership and Vizient for doing these and really for everything that you all do for us as leaders in academic and other health systems to really give us the tools and the guidance that we need to be successful in our roles. So thank you and can't wait to have you out here again for another update. I'm on the next plane as soon as, uh, <laughs> as, as, soon as the time comes. 
Thanks, Jonies. And, and thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.